Let us uh, begin our sermon with prayer this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you for your word and we ask you to guide us and strengthen us as we get to picture the eternal life that you prepared for us in heaven. Bless our meditation on your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, in the 1960s, uh, way back in the 1960s, some researchers at Stanford University performed what became known as the famous Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Have you ever heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? So here was how it worked, was that a child, age four, five, or six, would be led into a room. And in that room, there'd be nothing but a chair and a table and a little plate and a single marshmallow. Then, a researcher would enter the room and they would explain to the child the rules. They would say, either you can have this one marshmallow, you can eat it right now, or if you wait for 15 minutes and you don't eat it, I'll bring you a second marshmallow and then you can have two. Think about it, do what you want. Then the researcher would leave, but they would leave a video camera you know, recording what happened. And the recordings are hilarious. Like this, uh, this experiment has been done many times throughout the years, but they found like some of the kids, particularly the younger kids, had literally no self-control and they just immediately ate the marshmallow like before the guy's even out of the room. Um, but others of the kids adopted unique strategies to try and prevent themselves from eating that marshmallow. So some of the kids covered their eyes so they couldn't see it, or they're like bouncing or wiggling on the chairs, or in some cases holding the marshmallow and petting it and talking to it, um, singing songs with the marshmallow, maybe picking off just a little tiny piece and eating it just to see how it tasted. Um, but the experiment was carried out, the original one was carried out on 600 kids. And in the end of it, only one-third of them were able to wait successfully for the second marshmallow. So the, the other 400 just fell into temptation and ate the first one right away. Now, what is the purpose of doing such a cruel experiment as this one? Well, the, the purpose of the marshmallow test was that they wanted to see at what age could a kid understand the concept of delayed gratification. Delayed gratification being when you say no to something that you want right now, because you are waiting for something better that's going to come later. And as they learned, the younger kids were a little bit worse at it, the older kids were a little bit better at it, but actually none of the groups were really that great at it. And I'm not quite sure that adults are that great at it either. Uh, it's challenging to delay gratification in a world where we can have almost anything that we want immediately on demand. I mean, you think about it, the things that are normal right now They've never been normal in the history of the world before. You can watch any show you want, any episode you want, at any minute that you want. You never used to be able to do that. And you can watch it as soon as you want. And if it takes a while to buffer, you get angry. What is going on? This isn't how it's supposed to work. I want to watch it right away. Or even like Pandora or Spotify streaming music services, you can listen to any song you want to immediately. It has never been this way. You would have needed to have the bard come play the song. You had to put money in the jukebox. It only had 50 items. Like, any song that you want, you can just listen to it immediately. You can order any item that you want on Amazon Prime and have a full expectation it's going to be at your door in 24 hours. And if it's not, you're angry. 
because it should have been here by now. It didn't used to be this way. Um, so I don't think sinful human beings have ever really been good at delaying gratification, but I think it's quite possible that we are worse at it now than we have ever been before. I also think it's probable that our culture is worse at this than any other culture in the world because we have so many immediate conveniences right when we want them. So for these reasons, our sermon text this morning from Revelation chapter 7, it is going to be challenging for us, but then it is also going to be extremely refreshing for us. Because in this text, God lifts up our eyes from short-term thinking and he focuses us on what he has planned in the longest term and what is coming for us in eternity. So with that introduction, let's talk about the text a little bit from the book of Revelation. So last week, we covered like, we said this in Bible study this morning, we covered a very ambitious chunk of history, pretty much the whole New Testament era. But we were talking about the apostles and how the apostles were persecuted and killed for their faith and how actually there was only one apostle who survived to old age. It was the apostle John. Instead of being executed, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. So one day, as John sat in exile on Patmos, he had a vision from God. Really, he had a whole series of visions from God. Visions about the end of this world and the beginning of the next one. And John wrote those visions down in the Bible book that we now call Revelation. So if you open up Revelation, you know, John's got some introductory material. I'm sitting on the island and I have this vision. He's writing this down. And then he has letters, messages from God to specific churches. It takes up a few chapters. And then you jump into the first major vision. And it is a vision of God's heavenly throne room and all the different things that are happening in God's heavenly throne room. And one of those things in Revelation chapter 6, the chapter right before what we're about to talk about, the thing that you see in God's heavenly throne room is the very famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Have you heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? So it's, it's all symbolism. And so the first one, the white-robed horseman on the white horse is probably Christ going out in a good way, you know, to save the world. But all the rest of them are pretty scary. There is a red horse that symbolizes war and bloodshed. There's a black horse that symbolizes famine. There's a pale horse that symbolizes disease. And it says death is following right behind it. And so these horsemen are riding out from God's throne room to devastate the earth. And things, things are starting to look pretty bleak. So if you're reading through Revelation, you get to Revelation chapter 6, you might ask yourself the question, like, when is all this happening? When are these horses going to come? When in the future might these events take place? But the answer is, they're already happening. They're already happening. So you and I may not have experienced, like, the world wars of previous generations, but between Desert Storm, for some of you that were around way back then, and uh, the War on Terror, and Russia and Ukraine, and Israel and Palestine, and terrorist bombings and mass shootings, like we have seen in our lifespan all kinds of war and bloodshed. And you and I may not have experienced a famine, per se. I mean, we're not farmers, exactly. But did you know that across the world today, nine million people each year will die of hunger? Or what about this one closer to home? This really struck me this week when I looked it up. I couldn't believe it, but I looked it up across multiple websites. In metro Atlanta, 
One in five kids is living with food insecurity. Not totally certain where their next meal is going to come from. Can you believe that? One in five children in all of Metro Atlanta is living with food insecurity. Or another one, even in this first world country with all of our medical care and doctors, we still are no strangers to disease. I mean, we're still figuring out the effects of the COVID pandemic and we have things like diabetes and cancer and heart disease. And certainly, we are no strangers to death. So the horsemen of the apocalypse are ravaging our world as we speak. How are we supposed to react to this? Right, this is kind of the question. How are we supposed to react to all the troubles that come in life? Um, well, due to being the short-term thinkers that we are, we tend to react in one of two ways. When life is going great, so let's say there is not any war or famine or sickness currently affecting my life. Life is going pretty great. The way that we tend to think is it's just always going to be this way. And so we live in the moment, we soak it up, we love it, and we just don't give a thought for the future. However, when life is not going so great, when we are sick and suffering, when we're sad, we're mourning the loss of a loved one, whatever the case may be, we also act like it's always going to be this way. Right? We just become crushed with disappointment and depression and we, we live in the moment we're unable to look forward and think about the future. But do you see how either way we are doing the same thing? We're defining like our whole timeline of our existence just based on something that is temporary. And we could do that in very different situations. Imagine a man who is incredibly successful at work. He gets his big promotion. He buys his dream house and he says, yes, my life is awesome. Then imagine another man who gets fired from his job, can't pay his rent, finds himself out on the street, and he says, no, my life is ruined. These two men are in completely different situations, but they're doing the same thing. They're defining their whole existence by the temporary moment that they're in. They're both going to have ups and downs in their life. Also, both of them are going to eventually die. What's going to happen to them after they die? They're not thinking about it at all. Because whether for good or for bad, they're defining like their whole self by the temporary moment that they happen to be in. Right? Because we're just such short-term thinkers. And when we look at our life that way, what it does then is it creates a spiritual problem. And the spiritual problem is we start to define God by things that are temporary too. Like when life is going great, we assume that our relationship with God is going great. Like maybe I don't read God's word a lot, maybe I don't pray or talk to God a lot, but I mean, I'm assuming it's working out because look, my life is good. God must not have a problem with me. On the other side of things, when life is not going well, we assume that our relationship with God is not going well. And we say, what does God have against me? What is God's problem with me? Why does God keep pouring all this trouble into my life? Did I do something to make him mad? Is God even listening to me? Does God even care? So it's just remarkable, if you think about it, that we are so short-sighted that we will even take the eternal God of the universe, who's been around forever and is going to be around forever, and we will attempt to define what he is like based on the temporary moment that we are in in our life. It's just so short-sighted. We need to broaden our perspective. 
And so this is what God does for us in his word, very helpfully. And this is what God does for us in Revelation chapter 7. Moving away from the scary horsemen of the apocalypse, God moves to probably the most comforting chapter in the entire book of all of John's visions is Revelation chapter 7. And here God gives us a look at the long-term perspective of what is coming and what is waiting for us in heaven. And as we look now into the good, beautiful things in that heavenly throne room, it gives us game-changing perspective. First, perspective on God himself. What is God like? What does God look like from the perspective of heaven? Well, let the angels tell you in verse 12 as they fall on their faces before him and they sing, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Or let the great multitude of people in heaven tell you in verse 10, as they wave their palm branches and they shout, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You notice what no one is saying? No one is saying in heaven, what is God doing? What is God's problem? How could God possibly allow this or that to happen or this or that to not happen? Everybody in heaven is on the same page, and that page is they know that God deserves honor and glory forever and ever because he has figured it out. And they can see it from the perspective of heaven. He has defeated our enemies. He has forgiven our sins. He has provided salvation. And he has led us, he has led the people in heaven through the whole mess of their sin-broken world. And he has brought them safely home to the eternal peace and joy that they have been waiting for. God did it. Praise him forever. And there is nothing more to be said about God in heaven. As a result, how do God's people look? from the perspective of heaven. This is where this chapter gets really interesting. You look at this great multitude of people, and the first thing you notice about God's people in heaven is that they're totally united. John says there's a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. If you think about it, those factors, nations, tribes, peoples, languages, these are the things that divide people. In this world, these are the reasons for, you know, conflicts and prejudices and suspicion and and even outright war. And really, for all of human history, it's been this way. We will look at the world in terms of us and them, whoever the them are. But in heaven, all of God's people are perfectly united by the salvation that God has provided for all of them. They're perfectly on the same page. How else do God's people look in heaven? Well, secondly, They are totally pure. They are wearing these white robes, which is a symbol throughout the book, a symbol of purity and holiness. So think of it like this. If you're, you know, you're going through your life and you've got this white robe that you're trying to keep clean, and every mean action that you do, every cruel word that you say, every greedy or lustful or proud thought that you have, it's like a splattering of mud on this robe. And you go through life with the sinful nature that we have in the world that we're in. And by the time you get to the end, your robe is just absolutely splattered with filth. Um, But that's not what these people look like in heaven. And it's not because they live perfect lives. It's because of something that happened to them. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
And that is a fascinating picture, if you think about it. I am not a laundry expert. Far from it. But even I can tell you that if you're trying to wash a white robe and like make it and keep it white, maybe you want to use soap and water, maybe you might want to use bleach, you probably aren't going to use a whole lot of blood. Like, blood is not going to be a good ingredient for taking a white robe and making it whiter than it's ever been before. Typically. But the blood of the lamb is different. The blood of God's son is different. What does the Bible say about the blood of God's son? The blood of Jesus, God's son, purifies us from every sin. And so this is what has happened for the crowd of believers in heaven. They have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus shed in their place, and then they have been wrapped up and clothed in the perfect life of Jesus that he lived in their place. So God's people are totally united. They're also totally pure. Finally, they're totally victorious. They're holding palm branches, which to us, we're not sure what this is. In that culture, this is a symbol of victory. So all the things that they went through in their life, all their enemies that they faced, they came out on top. Victorious over every trouble, victorious over every temptation, victorious over every sin, and victorious over the devil himself. Again, they didn't win all these victories on their own. These victories were won for them and given to them by the perfect life of Jesus that he lived in their place. So now that God's people are standing there in heaven, united, pure, victorious, what are they doing? Well, now they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds pretty good. And so now we're looking at it and now we're asking, who exactly are these people? Who exactly is this crowd in Revelation chapter 7? Well, there's two ways to answer that question. The first answer is that these are the faithful believers who have gone before us. This is grandma and grandpa. This is great-grandma and great-grandpa. This is maybe mom or dad, siblings, children, friends. People that when we think of them, we have short-term sorrow because we miss them right now. And yet people that when we think of them, we can rejoice because we know they made it to the finish line and they are safe home with God in heaven. So that multitude in Revelation 7 is our loved ones who have gone before us. But it's also someone else. Who are these people standing before the throne, pure and victorious and united? These people are also us. Because God says, this is where we're going to stand someday. This is absolutely no doubt, no question, where you are going to stand someday. And if that's the case, that that's what you're going to be someday, then God says he wants you to think of yourself that this is who you already are. This is how we define ourselves as Christians. Not by our short-term circumstances. Am I young or old? Uh, rich or poor? Sick or healthy? Am I happy or sad? That's all short-term stuff. 
we define ourselves by this long-term reality. And the long-term reality is we are children of God. United, victorious, pure, washed in the blood of the Lamb already, getting to sing God's praises already, and looking forward to singing God's praises eternally once we get there with everyone else. But as you look at that crowd of people in heaven, God says, this is who you're going to be forever, and therefore, this is how I want you to think of yourself right now. So what does that look like? As you live in this world of you know, short-term thinking and immediate gratification, and you look at yourself and you realize you are one of these holy saints in heaven, that's who God has already made you, what does it look like to live your life in this world from that perspective? Well, it means when you see war and famine and disease and death in the world, when you see troubles and worries and problems in your own life, you don't have to be crushed by disappointment because you know all those things are temporary and much better things are coming. It also means when you experience success and riches and pleasure and happiness in life, you don't have to become obsessed with those things either because you know that they're temporary and even way better things are coming. And finally, it means that you develop different priorities for the way that you live and for the way that you think about other people. Like if God is already calling you his holy, perfect child, why would we not want to try to start living like his holy, perfect children now? If God is going to unite us in heaven with people from every nation, tribe, language, and people across the world, why would we not start wanting to show love and connection to people from every nation, tribe, language, and people now? Even if no one else is doing it. Maybe especially if no one else is doing it. But in such a short-sighted, immediate gratification world, we thank God for the gift of his word, which gives us that eternal perspective. And I pray that the hope of eternity in heaven would not only enrich our lives, but that God would use it to enrich the lives of all the people around us. I pray that God would grant that to each one of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.